Kafka and Bond listeners, welcome to Podcast 20. I've just been given a stat by Willard, and I don't reckon it'd be spot on, but he tells me that most podcasts die after 10, and we're up to 20, so I think mean, that's a fantastic achievement. 100% better than all those dead <laughs> ones out there. So we've kept us persevering through that. Today, I have both Tony and Paul. Paul, welcome back. You've been on a bit of hiatus. We got rid of you for a bit. I remember my 20s, Jamie. <laughs> you say 20 and... Um takes me back to a, to a time in my life that, that I, I'd rather forget. <laughs> a time in your life and these two boys are actually still yeah, in there. Still in. <laughs> a, 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 time of, a time of our lives where, where someone in this room may, may say a couple of kilos ago, not naming anyone's okay. name. Yeah, <coughs> Tony. Move, let's move on. <laughs> All, right. All right, team. We're here today to discuss a very exciting topic. Um, but look, it is going to be a bit dry in a sense, but um, we actually have had a lot of questions lately around it, um, and we've been seeing a fair few clients about quite it. Quite a well. few in-house heated debates, to be brutally honest, yeah, too, from a compliance perspective. Um, even with our licensee, and I guess a lot of study that you guys have done and um, some qualifications that you both have, but we're going to talk about self-managed super funds, um, the way they're established, why they're established, <laughs> and you know, I guess some regulatory changes to the self-managed super fund industry. Um, so I will hand it over to you boys, and I'll jump in when I have my questions as I sort of listen to this conversation with a, with a fair intrigue. I think to start with you speak about regulations and one of the changes in regulations for self-managed super funds uh, was, correct me if I'm wrong Paul, but I think two, maybe three years ago now, but definitely at least two years ago where accountants uh, actually had to be authorised representatives, no different than what we are of a licensee to be able to either set up or close down or Correct. recommend and, a and self-managed. There was a couple of carve-outs, yes. but they, did ha- they didn't really have the exemptions. They had to be licensed and <clears throat> as a result, couldn't just approach every single one of their clients. I mean, I saw an example, and this was going back probably 12, 13 years ago now, where a client had a self-managed super fund with an entire fund balance of $16,000, was getting charged $3,000 a year in a tax return of $500 as an audit, to have a self-managed super fund set up and I just looked at that and thought you've got to be kidding me and had made no contributions for three years but that's an example so, so thus accountants fell under the same regulations as us all being that not all of them are actually um, doing it so is that fair? Um, I, th- I think it is and I think as we've seen post Royal Commission um, regulation have tight- regulations have tightened up again uh, around the nature of uh, self-managed super funds and how someone or a group of people have been able to establish a self-managed super fund and for what reasons. Mm. Um, and I think we can look at um, uh, the last 20 years of property growth and, and everyone thinking that property is it in a bag of chips and wanting property to feature in every part of their wealth. Um, therefore, the popularity, I think, of self-managed super funds has come from you know people wanting to add more and more property to their portfolios, um, and who better to uh, say that you're able to afford a property other than your accountant? Um, a lot of people have subsequently been going to their accountants to um, get advice around that. I think though to add to that, the by law <coughs> though, if we go back to the compliance side, is that us as financial planners, accountants, lawyers, etc. Uh, we all have to act in our clients' best interests. Uh, and sometimes it is not in the client's best interest. So to have a self-managed super fund, even though they might want to buy a property, they just might not have mm. the 
ability to be able to buy it yet. So to set one up now, to be paying fees that are unnecessary for a number of years before they can actually afford uh, to be in that position. So, I mean, as you know, our basically our in-house ruling here is for at least the last three to four years, you only have a self-managed fund if you actually want to purchase a property. Well, let's, so, with, that, yeah. with that, before we get into to how we're doing it now, yeah. um, we, we were discussing before, can we take it right back to, I guess, when self-managed super funds first come onto the scene, in a sense? I, um, I couldn't tell yeah, you. I know I you, couldn't but, tell you. No, I'm but, ancient enough to tell you. <laughs> but we were discussing this before, and, and it's interesting to see, you know, I guess the way that investments worked within a self-managed super fund and the right reasons why people were putting them in place, um, I guess, to have direct shares. But yeah. we're now, there's now a way around that, and which we use. But I, I want to sort of go through that timeline if we can. Well, I think if if you have a look at this, you know, I think six hundred thousand um, self-managed super funds in Australia, and what's interesting is a lot of them actually don't seek advice, and those that don't just have cash. Well, the two major assets in a the regulator has been going on about property and borrowing within uh, self-managed super funds and doing it for the wrong reasons. That only makes up around about 5 or 7% of the actual uh, assets within self-managed super funds. 50% of self-managed super funds are in shares and of that 90% are Australian shares uh, and the other 50% in term deposits and sitting in cash. So it just goes to show people aren't seeking advice to setting these things up and yeah. aren't seeking advice. but. To get to answer your question, Jane, because I'm the only ancient one in this room that can actually, you know, give the the actual answer, you know, because I've lived through it. Originally, self-managed super funds were set up because clients didn't have a choice. They had retail personal superannuation policies, um, which haven't been around for you know 20 plus years now. But they were the super retail superannuation policies you had. They didn't have compulsory super. And if they did have large super balances, it was usually because they worked for large employer groups like your BHP or Telstra or back in those days, Telecom, um, or government. So the idea when they actually did retire and set up a self-managed super fund is because they, want, they wanted to take control of it and they went and purchased shares to get dividends, basically, and Australian shares. So thus, the large holdings nowadays of clients who have Australian equities within their self-managed super fund. Back then, you couldn't actually borrow money to invest through your super fund to buy a property unless it was a business premises. Hmm. So you could actually buy your business premises through superannuation 20-odd years ago, but not a residential investment property or borrow for that. So when those laws changed, that is only at that time where property being residential investment properties became more popular. But prior to that, you'll send up purely to buy Australian equities. But you haven't had to do that. If you want to own Australian equities in your super fund, you haven't had to do that now for probably 15 years. You could actually have you know, a wrap account uh, superannuation fund with a Macquarie or a net wealth um, as an example and actually own direct equities and nothing but direct equities. You don't have to be paying the extra fees on top of that uh, for accounting fees, etc. Can you tell me, so why did real property, as in residential property, feature within self-managed super funds um, when it was allowed? Like... How did it get? How did it pass legislation, or what was the rationale to be able to allow um, a self-managed super fund to borrow and buy into a, a, a real estate property? I can only speculate on what the rationale yeah, was, fine. obviously. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. Um, I, I think, a couple of components, and that was that 
that if they were allowing a super fund to borrow money to buy a business premises, why weren't they allowing a superannuation fund to borrow money in any aspect? No different than your family trust can, or your company can borrow money to invest in property, or you can privately. So if you can um, go and borrow money to invest in um, investment properties in your personal name, why couldn't you under the law do that within superannuation? Where it became really popular is why, I think twofold, there were a lot of property spruikers out there mm. who saw this as another opportunity of how to <coughs> flog a property uh, rather than actually working within the client's best interest. One of the things that then the ATO, I'm pretty sure it was the ATO, uh, it was either the ATO or ASIC, but I'm pretty sure it was the ATO, they came out with a ruling, and it's because they govern self-managed super funds, uh, so they came out with a ruling which I thought was exceptional, and that is that anything that is sold within a self-managed super fund as an investment is classed as a product. Even, for example, direct share is classed as a product. So to do that, you actually had to have and be an authorised representative or be authorised to be able to give investment advice within a self-managed super fund. Okay. So property spruikers <laughs> who weren't licensed, what they then would do is go and have some authorised rep pay them to a thousand bucks to stand at the back of the room to say, yes, you can do this. Mm. But they would still then go and sell the property and then they'll have someone sign off on that. And we saw that with um, a friend of mine who's a lawyer, saw that happen to his sister, mm-hmm. uh, where she was basically conned into it and it was an, just should not have been in that position. And it was an AMP um, authorised rep who did the statement of advice saying, I don't know if this is in your best interest, but yes, you can afford it. And the bottom line was she couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there was so I think residential investment property. Everyone in this country has loved residential investment property. Um, you know the, the Italians and the Greeks and uh, and everyone, all the immigrants out here, they've built their wealth. They've all been hard workers to come out here, but they've built their wealth on the back of property, uh, buying investment properties, etc. And I think then what's gone and happened is people said, well, I've got this money in my super fund. If I can buy a property within my super fund, would I? And then when you look at it and you say, well, think about it. You and I buy the exact same property next door to each other. They're apartments. You've got apartment 501, I've got apartment 502. Uh, They are an absolute mirror image of it. We buy it at the exact same day and we both spend half a million dollars on it. You buy it in your personal name and I and we're the same age, that would be lovely for me, uh, but we're the same age and we buy that property. In your personal name, we get the exact same rents and we never have a tenant and never have it unlet, okay? In by the, we're now both uh, age 65 and approaching retirement and you've decided with that property, that property is now worth, let's say it's been 15 years and it's now worth a million dollars, it's doubled in price. You decide, uh, neither of us have paid off any of the debt, so we still owe 300 grand on it, and we both decide that we're gonna sell that property and both of us get $1 million for that property. So we've both made a $500,000 capital gain. You've now got a $125,000 tax bill. The, my, by my super fund owning that property, I've now got a zero tax bill. But We've you, both made the same capital gain. You know this. I definitely do. You, I know this as well, you <laughs> yeah. assume. But we hope. do you think in general terms, because a lot of the conversations that I have about property in super doesn't 
circle around the long-term benefit or, or the post-retirement post-retirement tax ramifications or benefits of having the property in super. So, like, tell me, do you, when someone asks you, do they have any knowledge of super being a zero tax environment in retirement? No. So, oh, they, they, might have, they might have some knowledge on it, but if they come and they say, I want to buy this property. So let's assume they've come and they've asked us. And we turn around and we say, okay, here's the short-term scenario. I'm not a fan of negative gearing, as you're aware. I think that's spending a dollar to lose 50 cents. Okay, It doesn't make sense to me. But I am a big fan of neutral gearing. Um, with interest rates so low at the moment, you don't need much of a deposit to be neutrally geared anyway. Mm -hmm. But So I am a big fan of neutral gearing. Now, whereas our, our cousins on the accounting profession might turn around and say, no, I want you to get a tax deduction or a tax refund. And I think, well, if you want that, why don't you salary sacrifice that same amount that you would have lost, mm -hmm. salary sacrifice at the superannuation, you still get the tax deduction, but the entire amount of money, you're not putting a dollar into your super to lose 50 cents, you're putting a dollar into your super to lose 15 cents mm. and have 85 cents invested. So I think the clients don't know that, but when they look at that, it's a case of sometimes, do you mean I can pay zero capital gains tax if I sell this once I'm retired? And you say, yes, same property, same result over the same period of time. Tax in your personal name is different than tax in the family trust, which is different to tax in your super fund. So on that basis, I say, well, that's fantastic. I want to buy 10 properties in my super fund. Well, you can't because you don't have the money. Okay, so the lending criteria in super is a lot stricter. Uh, you need more equity in your super, etc. How, how have you seen that, that the lending change in the last four years? Especially oh, geez, I've gone from... Like, I think I started four years ago. Six years ago, it was 10% deposit on residential, or five, six years ago, 10% deposit on residential, 30% deposit on commercial, to nowadays it's 30% deposit on residential, and about 50 to 60% on commercial. Yeah, and yeah. Borrowing, borrowing the interest rates, rates are, rates are yeah, far, far outweigh what you're paying in your personal name. Yeah, um, a good 200 basis points yeah. um, higher. Uh, what you pay in your personal name so so yeah the lending is a lot stricter because the rules behind that property it's a non-recourse loan is a lot stricter. and th this is without boring everyone to tears because you know i'll talk to i'll talk with mouth of marbles underwater about this but mm -hmm. i think the key is is that there are rules and regulations so as much as poor what you're saying about that end benefit that end benefit is tremendous absolutely tremendous but in saying that, there are rules and restrictions. You can't buy 10 investment properties in your super fund anymore. Um, so I think that's the thing. But I still come back to that thing of why is a client being recommended to set up a self-managed super fund in the first place? And that's the part where I've often queried and questioned, why does this client have a self-managed super fund? What, what benefit has been added to the client by the recommendation for them to actually set up a self-managed super fund over and above what they already had. Yeah. All right, Paul. So, Paul, on the other side of it, I guess you were talking as well, you've just seen someone of recent times, um, insurance and self-managed super funds, and I guess the laws behind insurance and holding it within super. Um, so... I guess that sheet that gets signed every year, you have to review so uh, Okay, so... Technically, every year you have to complete an insurance and investment review of your self-managed super fund. 
Um, on behalf so, of the members. On behalf of the members of the superannuation fund. Mm. Now, I, I think, and this is another misunderstanding of, of people that set up super funds, the onus gets put back on you. Everything is your responsibility. Everything. You don't have someone that invests every, uh, the, your contributions for you. You don't have someone that puts default insurance against your name. You don't have any of that. Any of that, all of that, sorry, is on you. Therefore, you have to complete on an annual basis an insurance and investment uh, review to, to state that the members of the fund have the appropriate insurances uh, in place, the, the appropriate investment strategy in place according to their risk profile, um, and there is a long-term strategy within that fund. Every time I, I ask, and, and this is as recent as last night, when I'll ask someone about uh, their insurance and their investment um, uh, review and, and, and profile, it's, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but they've had the fund for seven years. But they've had the fund for, <laughs> for, 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 for a long time, and the, the last time they completed their tax and audit return was seven years ago. Um, and what is also frightening is with the same prospective client is uh, you mean to tell me that I may not get my, my age pension because I've got too many, su too many assets in super and, and in my personal name. That's another red flag. So you've got to think, what does the regulatory landscape look like in terms of insurance and investment and speaking to, to people that have self-managed super funds that are expecting the age pension as well? You've got to think, all right, well, how did they get there and is it in the best interests of these people to have that, uh, that, that self-managed fund? Is it to their benefit? Back to the insurance side of things though, if, if you want to get into a self-managed super fund and you roll out from your Australian super um, accumulation fund that has two or three or four hundred thousand dollars worth of life and total and permanent disability and a little bit of salary continuance, um, despite the fact that I don't support that type of insurance because it's got more holes in Swiss cheese, the, the fact is you've rolled out of that retail fund or industry fund to go into your self-managed super fund with not having the appropriate protection in place. What happens if something goes wrong? You're foregone that potential benefit of that life and TPD insurance and salary continuance, irrespective of how good it is or not. And what's happening is, like, a lot of people are starting self-managed super funds for the purposes of, of going into property because someone gave them the idea and foregoing that benefit. Who pays for that? Well, there was one example of a, an accountant who ended up paying for that. I think it was $1.5 million. Yes, the actual that. lawsuit was about $3.5 but it's, um, it was two clients who uh, the accountant had suggested that they set up a self-managed super fund uh, the accountant was not actually registered as an authorised rep to be able to give that advice firstly, but the accountant had the client sign off a letter, uh, basically one paragraph letter saying that I approached the accountant and I uh, recommended, uh, I wanted this to be set up, It was uh, the accountant did not provide advice. Now, it just goes to show that that letter that we've seen hundreds of times over, it just goes to show that that letter does not stand up in a court of law because the client was uh, got up there on the, sta on the stage, um, on the bench to, um, in the court, and stated, no, the, the accountant had approached me and had me sign this letter. 
so it was the accountant's word versus the uh, client's word. On this case, though, there were several of those letters sitting on self-managed super fund files in the accountant's office. So the client had three odd, three hundred odd thousand dollars uh, in various superannuation funds, had life cover and TPD, what Paul just mentioned, um, attached to that and rolled the funds over into a self-managed super fund. The funds were sitting in cash, so they weren't even invested. Um, as Paul just mentioned, it is compulsory by law under the CIS Act that you must have your investment strategy and insurance uh, strategy um, completed. You can't just sign off a one page just saying, yeah, I've considered it. There actually has to be proof of the consideration for it. In this case, once again, there was no proof of any consideration. The money had just been rolled over into the fund. There was reasons why, there was benefits that were going to be had and all this, with the exception that the client, I think, fell off a roof or something and broke his back and became totally and permanently disabled, never to be able to return to work again. His insurance had gone. There was like $400,000 or $1,000 worth of cover, TPD cover. Uh, there was income protection. The, the lawyer had put in a claim of three odd million dollars versus you know lost income over that period of time um, the whole three million wasn't upheld but the client uh, the accountant ended up through his pi cover ended up having to um, uh, end up paying out 1.5 million dollars because he might have had the letter signed one page assigned uh, by the client but there was no consideration done so even though paul was saying it is onto the member uh, for that in this case, it just goes to show the accountants had made the recommendation they weren't legally allowed to uh, make that recommendation and they were held legally responsible for that client having lost the cover. And not even in this case, like the accountants we work uh, or refer their clients to us, of course, but not even in this case actually referring the client to going and getting uh, their insurances reviewed and looked at. Yep. It just wasn't even a consideration. So I guess the good news is both of you two have hit the book. And you've both got the qualifications. Yeah. For years. Um, for years. A long time now, Jamie. So <laughs> they're both hanging on the wall. But I guess in here we can give advice. Um, and we do do that for our accountants. And we also do that for our clients in that review of strategy. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's what, 20-odd uh, accounting firms that we work with uh, that we do pro provide advice to their accounts, but as uh, their clients. But in saying that as well, if, if we think a self-managed super fund is not in the client's best interest, we'll actually state that. Yeah. So a client can't just be referred to us because the accountant said set up a self-managed super fund and we look at it and say, but why? Uh, and I was, I was asked just um, last week doing a review for um, a couple of young clients and they said, they said, oh, should we consider putting our funds together and having a self-managed super fund? And I said, why? They said, oh, well, it was suggested by the accountant. And I said, well, you only got a combined balance of 200 grand you don't have enough money at the moment to buy a property in there. Are you going to make large contributions into this? Because you're both early 30s, very successful, both in your early 30s. I said, no. And I said, so what investments are you going to do? And they said, well, the same as what you're doing for us. Well, why are you going to set up a self-managed super fund and pay three and a half grand in accounting fees yeah. to have the exact same stuff as what you got now? I said, I mean, if you want to donate that to your accountant, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> but it's, uh, but why, why would you actually want to do that? So... And that, now, uh, on that basis, we just said, I don't see any reasoning why. If you want to, that's fine. You go ahead and do it. But I'm not going to recommend you do it. And I'm not certainly not putting that in a statement of advice because my recommendation would be that you do not require that. Uh, so don't proceed with that. 
So it's um, so that that's that's where we stood on that one, and I, I think that's that's the case. So um, so uh, we don't work with that accountant, by the way. But it's uh, but the the basis of even if we did, I'd still be questioning the accountant of why the recommendation was actually made on that basis. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. I know this will come across as a bit of a dry subject to people. Don't I was excited. <laughs> but it actually has been asked a lot of recent, and there has been a lot of examples, um, and I guess with time regulations. I, I, I think if I can quickly chime in there, it's. I, I think we're at the tip of the iceberg in terms of how far the regulators are going to come down on uh, the, the self-managed sector um, over the next couple of years. I, I think it's... It's going to be a danger zone for a lot of professionals who are good professionals who just don't otherwise know where they can and can't uh, advise or, or broach the topic, um, because effectively someone's life's at stake. Yeah. Paul, um, in our face year exam uh, that we all have to do in our industry, one of the topics in there is ethics, yeah. and when it comes to this, uh, the law's the law. There's no grey areas. No. Don't th don't there think that you don't think that you can just cross the line in a grey area and get away with the regulators. We'll come down hard on you, and I think for very valid reasons. But there's lots of stuff that's gone on out there which hasn't been done correctly. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.